one of the high school students that was having a rough time in the classroom, not like participating. Then he shared at home his mom was kicking him out of the house. And so he found a hallway somewhere and did mindful breathing in the hallway till he could calm down and, and call a friend. Mm. So like really significant situations are being yeah. changed because of mindfulness. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast. My name is Morgan Dix, and this is a show about meditation, mindfulness, and your health. And this week, it is my pleasure to share my interview with you from Gabriel Baldwin. So Gabriel, very cool story. I just met him in a cafe one day. I had seen him a few times in this cafe where I often work, and I just... Uh, stuck out my hand, and it turned out that we had a tremendous amount in common. He's a mindfulness teacher. So after transitioning out of a successful career as an engineer and consultant in the field of energy efficiency and green construction during his 20s, he now teaches mindfulness in public schools and after-school programs and camps in greater Boston and beyond, and has taught mindfulness to over 3,500 youth in the last several years. And in this interview, we really talk about how Gabriel made that tra transition into teaching mindfulness. He started himself when he was a young teenager. And so it's a very, very interesting story. I think you're going to love it. And before we jump into the show, two quick things I wanted to share with you. First, one thing that I love more than anything else, one thing that helps us, helps our show, is when you leave us ratings and reviews on iTunes. It, one review, seriously, it shoots our exposure through the roof on iTunes. It totally helps other people find our show. And then I wanted, there was this great review from nconstantino91 recently that I wanted to read. And he, he wrote, I started meditating when I realized that I had uncontrollable anxiety back in July of 2017. I was two months into working for Tesla, a big company changing the world for the better, and eyes are always on you there. For some reason, I could not take that. And I was at the point of quitting because my anxiety was out of control but I stuck it out. I've been meditating as a beginner for about 15 to 20 minutes every day since, and I still work for Tesla. Yay, and Constantino, nice. Hearing your podcast and the people that you interviewed so far is amazing. To hear their story, why they started meditating, and their practice to better their meditation shows that my meditation can get better. It's an inspiration to hear your podcast, and I continue to learn and be amazed every time I do. Thank you. Well, thank you, man. I, or uh, I, I shouldn't assume that you're a man, woman, who, whoever you are. Thank you so much. That completely made my day when I read that. You really kind of encapsulated the mission of our podcast. If we can help you, whoever you are listening to this show, through these interviews, that's my goal. That's my passion. That's my mission. And it's the mission of our whole our whole website, me and Tom Burchad, my co-founder. So thank you so much. And if you love the show, if you're inspired by the show, please leave us a rating and a review over on iTunes. 
I would love to read your review on the air. So before we jump into the show with Gabriel, I wanted to share a quick word from our sponsor, Health IQ. The One Mind Meditation Podcast is sponsored by Health IQ, which is an insurance company that helps health conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. Sounds pretty cool to me. So go to healthiq.com slash one mind to support our show and see if you qualify. Did you know that physically active people have a 34% lower risk of all-cause mortality, a 56% lower risk of heart disease, and a 22% decrease in cancer mortality compared to people who remain inactive? So to see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com forward slash one mind or mention the promo code one mind when you talk to a health IQ agent check it out okay thanks for listening now on to our show with Gabriel Baldwin Gabriel, welcome to the show. I am so delighted we made this happen, and I'm so happy we ran into each other in Cafe Nero and introduced ourselves. Yeah, thank you so much, Morgan. Yeah, I really appreciate your friendly nature, your smile, and uh, introducing yourself. And it was really surprising how um, remarkably similar our worlds are. And who would have thought that from just a, a friendly face at a cafe? Uh, working on our laptops. Yeah. Totally. That was it was definitely meant to be. I have no mm-hmm. question about it. Right, and we're uh, relatively neighbors in the same neighborhood. Yeah. And and everyone just quick like super quick backstory. I had seen Gabriel a few times in a cafe that I camp out at during the week to do work and you know, had a strong impulse. I was like, I I, I have to say something to this guy. I don't know why, but I see him seems, you know, energetically to have, I have some resonance with him. So I'm just going to like introduce myself and say hi. And like within a a minute or two, we kind of, I mean, quickly we realized we're both in the whole meditation space. And in fact, uh, professionally, this is Gabriel's life. So I was intrigued to learn about obviously Gabriel what you do and and excited to get you on the show so I think it'd be great if you could just share with everyone a little bit let's just let's just go into your story can you can you tell everyone a little bit about what you do but then let's back up and say you know like how did you start teaching mindfulness in the schools absolutely Morgan yeah um I'll start at the beginning, but first, where where I am right now is I teach mindfulness in schools, after-school programs and camps around in Boston and various other places further away occasionally as well. And where I came from is, uh, so I work with children as well as teenagers. Mm -hmm. Um, and I like to say I I used to be a teenager too. (laughs) (laughs) That's like Mr. Rogers says that a lot. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's one of my heroes. Me too now. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was a teenager, I was having a pretty rough time 
Yeah. I was I was depressed and uh a big part of every day was that I was I was bullied at school. Mm. And so it was my eighth grade, ninth grade, and tenth grade years were the most miserable of my life. It was pretty painful. I was also diagnosed with all sorts of learning disabilities. Mm. So I was put in the um the sort of a special classroom with a like six students or something with a teacher sort of separate from the rest. So there, there was a lot of pieces that weren't awesome. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So my, my, um, parents got me, uh, like a a counselor, um, mentor and, and my, my godmother recommended a a mindfulness camp. So like a a five day mindfulness program for teenagers at the insight meditation society, IMS in Barrie, Massachusetts. And so I said, sure, why not? I got nothing else to lose. And so I, she drove me there and I, it was introduced to the skills of mindfulness meditation and I was remarkably life-changing, both the, mm. the practices that I learned, but also perhaps more important to me was when you have a number of teenagers together meditating, they tend to be nice to each other. Yeah. And, uh, imagine that. Yeah. So my experience of peer relationships, other teens in large groups was that of being bullied and then the the distinct difference of being included and welcomed and befriended was so healing to me as mm. yeah. yeah so I, I believe I, it yeah so i really came out of that retreat sort of changed and i ended up switching to a different school after that and so my my life trajectory shifted Mm. Um, and so I kept on going back every summer. I would look forward to it all year long, the, the summer yeah. mindfulness camp. And then, yes. What was this, it called? It was that inbound meditation. Is that what it did? No. So, so the, in, uh, insight meditation society's teen retreat. And so got it at some point. So I, after I, I stopped being a teenager anymore, um, I started going back as a, a helper, someone um, helping to run the retreat with the mm-hmm. teachers. Mm-hmm. And so I did that for a number of years. And during that time, a nonprofit took on this model that IMS has for the teen yeah. retreats and copied it and made sure it was like fully secular in terms of its offerings to be accessible Mm. to more people because Mm. ims is a a buddhist teaching center yeah so i i be me inward bound mindfulness education is now um a nonprofit that runs programs across the country as well as canada and the uk and there's a sister organization in australia as well it's a clever name, inward bound, playing off outward bound. I exactly. I like that. Yeah. 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 So we go in and some of the retreats are actually backpacking retreats as well. So I've gone into the emigrant wilderness in the mountains in California for a mm. 10 day backpacking mindfulness. Really? Program. With teens? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So teens and young adults, the, the hiking trips include 
uh, into their 40s, uh, into the 20-year-old range. Yeah. So I have questions about that initial retreat that you attended. Mm -hmm. When you, so you said it was very healing, and yeah. you, you attributed that to obviously, ha you know, it sounds like for the first time, at least in your teenage life, having kind of real, healthy, just somewhat normal relationships, with, you know, free of history with other teenagers. So obviously that was incredibly significant as mm -hmm. a teenager. Yeah. But was there anything also in the experience of meditation and mindfulness itself that you remember that stuck out for you? Yeah, yeah. So um, a number of things, one of which is uh, like a loving-kindness meditation. Mm -hmm. um, my, my cat had just recently died, and so there was some grief sadness around that and so for young people a pet dying is a fairly significant event yeah and so being able to send uh, kind thoughts and to be with my cat in my mind was a really really powerful experience that i i still remember and mm. cherish mm. wow yeah um but another yeah. another piece is that I, I learned that mindfulness could sort of ground me or help me deal with the problem. So, so I sort of took away that um, I, I would use meditation instead of medication. Mm, nice. <laughs> so, so whenever I had a problem, instead of taking a pill to fix it, I would just meditate and uh, resolve the issue. And so sort of a Western approach to um, meditation is when you're not feeling great, you just meditate and fix it. So yeah, <laughs> when I was a teenager, that's, that's what I did. So when yeah. I was having a hard time, I would sit and do some meditation or do some walking meditation or yeah. some loving kindness. What was the actual technique that they were teaching you? I, it, you know, it sounds like there were, a number of different techniques, mm -hmm. but when you would do meditation instead of medication, yeah. what what were what were you practicing when you did that? So really, awareness of breath um, at the mm -hmm. belly. So noticing the rise and fall of my belly as I breathe, and yeah. each time the mind wandered, just sort of bringing it back in a friendly kind of way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sort of for basic vanilla mindfulness meditation yeah but I, I, and and it sounds like that was a big a big tool for yeah you. yeah and i still do that um 16 yeah. or so years later yeah well okay so then you come out of that camp and mm -hmm. you're changed did did you find that you had and I think you, you kind of alluded to this if not spoke to it directly did you feel you had a kind of different fresh ground in yourself when you went to that new school did you feel almost like it was a kind of new you yeah yeah in many ways it was a new me yeah the vast majority of the patterns that i had in my old school sort of disappeared occasionally some of the the dynamics would still occur it was um a public boarding school in northern maine the main mm. school of science and mathematics Mm -hmm. 
so it was an interesting high school experience being yeah. a nerd geek in this place the the yeah. best math and science students in the, the state all together in this little tiny boarding school that's publicly huh. funded wow interesting mm-hmm and then, so, all right, so, like, fast forward to then you you mentioned you did a couple of these retreats out in California, and I'm just a, a little curious about that, too. Like, when you go out on wilderness retreats, obviously, you know, I've done a lot of outdoor, a lot of hiking, a lot of camping, a lot of similar, like, 10-day backpacking trips, usually, though, just with a, a friend or two you know, where I would go out like in the Sierras or in the, uh, in the, the Blue Ridge Mountains or, or in the Rockies. And definitely for me, that was, I feel like immersion in those environments definitely awakens something just by virtue of just, just the raw presence of nature, I think in a lot of ways and just being stripped down to that kind of very s- simple, way of being yeah absolutely yeah what ha- what would you guys do like what was how is it quote unquote a mindfulness uh adventure right so similar to the residential programs that we put on is there's like a regime of of sitting and walking meditation as well mm-hmm. as loving kindness and meditation instructions and uh, sort of a wisdom conversation or dialogue teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So those components were still there and we had to sort of hike from one place to another and stop and sort of explore different places. And so we would do some like um, uh, silent hiking. So really not having conversation so that our attention is into the natural world around us and we're a little bit spaced out. Yeah. And other times we would have just sort of regular hiking along and conversations, whatever appeared. And so, yeah, Mm. so going out and finding your meditation spot was sort of a big part of it. So each place we would go, you could, you could find your, your spot that spoke to you and, and sit in the, the mindfulness practices as well as just really soaking up the, the natural world and, and being in there. And one neat component is that there'd be like um, a 24-hour, a full uh, day of solo experience during this mm. so that each of the teens and young adults would spend a significant amount of time by themselves and maybe this is the first time in their life that they've ever been truly by themselves yeah um, in the wilderness and we as staff are obviously like um within relatively short distance if and we'd check on sort of get a visual to make sure that they were still safe um once or twice during that experience yeah yeah, wow. That that sounds magnificent. <laughs> I'm jealous. Right, that, yeah, so it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. But the majority of the, the, the programs that Inward Bound puts on are, are residential rather than wilderness. Got it. All right, well, thank you for taking us on that little detour. Mm-hmm. And 
so let's get back to your your kind of narrative. So, right, yeah. Let's just yeah. So you were helping out with these uh, inward bound, and mm-hmm. and then kind of take it from there. Yeah. So I I did a number of um. So I, every summer I would do the IMS teen retreat, and this is while I was finish going to college and after college I, I went to engineering school became an engineer um, doing energy efficiency consulting on new construction residential buildings yeah like apartment buildings and whatnot so I did that for five years and um, I started feeling disenchanted with my work not feeling like I was making a, a, a full contribution many of the clients were more interested in government incentive money for doing the efficiency work than actually doing some a building a building that would make use less energy and be more green yeah and so uh my job was to make it so that they could make the least efficient building that they could possibly make and still get the money oh <laughs> man so so um it was it was tough for me ethically because I was in it to to make a positive difference, not just to have a job, and so it was a taxing on me uh, on my my integrity. Yeah. So I I I told my boss that I just couldn't do it anymore, and I quit cold turkey when started. I and the next week I went and had signed up for a mindfulness training for classroom teachers so i started going to trainings to teach in schools and that's when i i started going on as many ibme retreats as there were so i was flying around the country in canada going to different retreats all summer as well as training to do classroom work and so did you have a vision at that point for what, like, what exactly you wanted to do? I, I didn't. I, I sort of was going off the, um, the cusp of whatever seemed right at the moment and yeah. following my intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in hindsight, I wish I had had a, like, um, a mentor that was already in that world doing mindfulness in schools already that I could apprentice with. And so like Mm. what I'm coming out of in in my life is realizing the value of apprenticeship um, as a form of training that is sort of disappeared from our society. Yeah, it has. You're really, that's really true. Yeah. So, so schooling, isn't apprenticeship college is an apprenticeship sometimes a a work environment can be like an apprenticeship but it often isn't and so in hindsight i wish that there was uh, an apprentice or someone i could have apprenticed with it would have i felt uh, feel like it would have sped things up because it took a couple years to really get into uh, the work of being in schools and getting paid and running programs at after school um, yeah. organization. Yeah. So, well, so now, now that I'm 
I'm here, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm really grateful because the process that I did have, I learned a lot during that process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all right. So, so now, all right. So how did you, how did you actually get into teaching mindfulness in the schools? Like, so yeah, how did you kind of break in? Cause it sounds like a lot of the courses you took were for actual teachers, which you weren't at the time. Did you know that research has shown that meditating daily can lower blood pressure, decrease cortisol levels, and reduce the risk of death from heart disease? The One Mind Meditation Podcast is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. And you can go to healthiq.com forward slash one mind to support the show and see if you qualify. But here's the cool thing. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health conscious people, including runners, cyclists, strength trainers, vegans, and more. So probably you, I'm guessing. So check it out to see if you qualify. Get your free quote today at healthiq.com forward slash one mind or mention the promo code one mind when you talk to a health IQ agent. Also, I will link up the health IQ hot link in our show notes for this episode. So check it out. Now back to our show. How did you actually get into teaching mindfulness in the schools like so yeah how did you kind of break in because it sounds like a lot of the courses you took were for actual teachers which you weren't at the time right yeah Um, so I had no uh teaching experience so to speak is like a classroom teacher no education for being a classroom teacher so yeah it's going from engineering to teaching mindfulness um that's perhaps one of the, the reasons why it was difficult because schools were like, um, you don't have any teaching experience. <laughs> right, right. But I'm like, exactly. I've been doing all this mindfulness camps. And it was just, um, it was too uh, in, off or different for uh, cold outreach. Yes. Um, so yeah. I, it's very, like cold, yeah, it's like cold calling or, or mm-hmm. cold sales. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I didn't get anywhere with that. So what I, I, how I ended up working is that there are parents that are interested in mindfulness for their young people. And well, so my first uh, experience in schools was there was a, um, a charter school in Somerville yeah. that was having a lot of challenges. A number of their teachers kept quitting, and so they were losing teachers, and they had to fill up that time with something. And so, yeah. so it was unfortunate that the integrity of the school was was such that they just were sort of looking for anything to fill that time. Yeah, but it was uh, fortunate for me that what they filled it with was mindfulness, mm. and so I was instead of Spanish and art classes I was teaching mindfulness in their school and the, so was it through a parent that you got in there 
No, so this this one was actually through a, um, a organization that teaches mindfulness in schools. Um, yes. They brand themselves internationally, Ivy mm-hmm. Child International. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I, I sort of t- I taught with them for a spring. Um, cool. And so that was a, a very good learning opportunity. Um, but then the, the following year, this this parent that was invited to teach mindfulness in their classroom, their students' classrooms, um, and then other teachers were interested in it. And then the demand was beyond the the parents' capacity as a as a working adult uh, volunteering their time to teach. Yeah. And they had been, uh, there was a, a grant opportunity to do more work. And so she brought me in to support teaching more classes mm. at the various schools in Cambridge. Nice. Um, with that grant funding. Yeah. That's and awesome. So that was fantastic. That was a year. And then the Cambridge Public Schools hired me and three others as um, mindfulness guest teachers. Mm. And so now we're contract-based employees where they have funds and they we get contracted to do a certain number of courses with different classrooms. So what what's the age what's the age range? Well, one how, how many now how many years have you been in the classroom now and number two, what's the age range that you're teaching. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 the first year I was in a, a school was the uh, spring of 2014. Mm-hmm. So coming on four years now. Yeah. 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 And, and what was the second question? Uh, the what's the age range that you were t- that you are mm-hmm. teaching and and started teaching? But like, what do you? Yeah. What's the age range you teach? So so I teach all the way down to pre K, pre kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And all the way up through twelfth grade, and also some of the after-school programs and programs that I run independently go up into early adulthood, young adulthood of um, mid twenties. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. So, tell, like, share with us a little bit about what happens in the classroom, and and I I imagine it's different at obviously with different ages but i guess i'm kind of curious at the two ends of the spectrum the youngest and the oldest because obviously mm-hmm. the youngest are you know they're wide open you know and yeah. the oldest are teenagers who are you no know, you know they've developed some thick skin but at the same time off, often have a soft core and i'm yeah. curious yeah absolutely yeah so the youngest students I love them very much. I yeah. um, I come in with a smile and I say, so we have a routine. So I go in and I sit down and they all know what to do. They get into their mindful bodies. I sometimes have to remind them, find your mindful body. And so they, they sit cross-legged and they put their hands on their knees and then they find their breath and they notice their breath for a minute or two, about one minute per grade level uh-huh, um, uh-huh. is a rough rule of thumb. But if they're going longer, we go longer. And if they're starting to get restless, we cut it shorter. 
And is that their mindful body, what you just described, this sort of sitting position and locating their breath and, and becoming aware of it? Yeah, yeah. So the mindful body doesn't necessarily have to do with the breath. We could do listening mindfulness, noticing sounds in the room. Mm-hmm. The mindful body is really just the posture that uh, supports practicing mindfulness. Got it. Okay. And then after that, they share how they've been using mindfulness in their life. And so this is the inspiring part for me, as well as the other students and teachers as they share. I was on the playground and I was, I couldn't find my mom and I got scared. And so I did mindfulness and I was able to find her again. Mm. And, or they might share that I was about to hit my sibling and I had some (laughs) mindfulness and then I didn't hit them. Yeah. Or I was having a fight with my mom and I suggested that we both do mindfulness and yeah. they both did some mindfulness. Oh, okay. that's awesome. So how old are these kids who are saying this? They're like five, six? Yeah. Yeah. Five, six, seven, eight. Yeah. And, and so what are some exercises you do with the kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's very basic uh, mindfulness exercise where we find our breath and we use our hand to help us find our breath. Yeah. Because we can put our hand on our belly or our chest. Yeah. And notice the movement of our hand as it goes up and down. Mm. I I noticed that on your website that one of the lead pictures, although all the kids have their hands on their on their tummies or their chest. Yeah, yeah, and they also could put their hands up on their um their nose to feel the actual breath coming in and out of the nose. So that's another spot they sometimes use. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's one mindfulness and the other um another one is listening, noticing sounds around us. Yes. I, I do that with my daughter a lot. I mean, she's oh, two. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds oh, I, are probably accessible. Yeah, sounds are accessible. So, and often she'll just pull things out where you don't even notice it. And she'll be like, plane, you know, and then you'll just right. stop. And you'll be like, oh my gosh, that's a really distant plane. But she completely. Yeah. Well, now that it. you say that, I hear one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. And uh, I think. I for me sound has always been such a portal to mindfulness and meditation and so it was an it's always been a natural thing with Alia to just basically tune in and sometimes I find if we're together and I just go there she'll follow I don't even need I don't even need to give her a verbal cue you know I'll just start listening and then I can tell she's just with me she just like gets on the train and goes and so we'll just be together listening. It's very quiet, but we're completely together in mm. that. And uh, I love that because obviously it's just a very simple way at this age to help her connect with a whole kind of dimension of her world, her environment. Absolutely. And when we as adults reflect back that those are are valid places to put our attention, it it encourages more of that and it's calming and grounding. Yes. That's cool. So what else do you use? Do you ever use like instruments or like a chime or? Yeah. So I, I use a vibratone, which is 
a, a long cylinder um, metal tone bar that maybe drummer or percussionists use, and you just hit it with a little rubber mallet, and it makes a nice sound. Mm. Um, so we listen to that sound as a particular sound and notice it to the very end. And when they yeah. can't hear it anymore, they raise their hand. And the students love this. Oh, so it's like yeah. listening for as long as possible? Mm-hmm. Yep, until it's gone. So it gets very, very quiet. Oh, that is really cool. Mm-hmm. So some of them like lean in to try to hear it even longer. Yeah. Wow. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then there, there's, there's, uh, I teach mm, the mindful schools curriculum. There's, I've trained in quite a few, the mindfulness in schools project curriculum, yeah. the calmer choice curriculum that are down on Cape Cod. I've gone through their full training program and taught with them down on Cape Cod. Yeah. Um, and I really like the Mindful Schools curriculum because it's very short and concise. The lessons for the elementary school age youth are 15 minutes long. So it's perfect. really short of short. We do a little practicing mindfulness. They get a chance to share. And then I say, would you like to learn something new today? And they say, yes, yes. And so then we learn a new way of doing mindfulness. So there's 16 uh, lessons. So we learn 16 different ways of doing mindfulness. Beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah. What, what, is there anything in teaching uh, that this age group, kind of looking back, anything that has been surprising to you in all of this or challenging? So one thing that's surprising is so I had never worked with children before in my life, like because I was a teen and working on the teen retreats. Yeah. I had many, many years of relating with teenagers in a context of mindfulness. Uh, but then I, the first time I'm really interacting with young children and I don't have like a lot of relatives that were of this age range that I spent a lot of time with. So literally my first interactions with children of this age are um, a mindfulness classroom setting. So I, I didn't go through early childhood education. So I, um, yeah. I don't have a strong understanding of what young children are supposed to be cognitively capable of. Yeah. And so I am coming in with a, a tendency towards assuming that they'll know what I mean when I say certain things and use certain words. Yeah, yeah. And classroom teachers, are regular. they regularly tell me that they're shocked that, one, I used certain sort of metaphors or uh, vocabulary and that the students understood what I was saying or meaning. Mm. So both that teachers were surprised that I wasn't sort of uh, unelegant way of saying it is dumbing it down. Yes. Um, but then the students were more able than they had assumed to, to learn in this more adult way. Mm -hmm. So something that I've, I've tried working on is the areas or things that just don't work in uh, incorporating and learning about some uh, early childhood education to like to be more appropriate 
and one of the ways that I, I sort of incorporate it is more um, like story. Yeah. Like it keeps their attention really well. Right. Instead of right. more intellectual like um, concepts about yeah. like how the brain works or something. Right. More like didactic instruction versus, yeah, narrative instruction. Right. Right. That, that makes sense. That's interesting. And, but overall, it sounds like what you're saying is it, it was surprising for the teachers the, yeah. the degree to which the, the kids actually grokked what you were saying. Right, yeah. So, so if there's anything the listeners would take away is treat your young people that you have in your life more like an adult. You might be surprised at what level that they're able to communicate on. Yeah. So that's something that I'm learning about. Mm. That's, that's so interesting. It just makes me think of the fact that as human beings, we have different lines of intelligence. Like we have a cognitive line of intelligence. We have an emotional line of intelligence. And, you know, those things obviously are related, but often completely divergent, you know, and, yeah. and, and can have profound positive and negative effects on one another. But, you know, I would imagine with children that you could see sometimes these more advanced lines of, 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 you know, cognitive, rational understanding and development, but maybe their emotional landscape is still maybe more, just more simple, you know, and so maybe that provides mm -hmm. a more fundamental lens, although their brain can kind of get it. It's still landing in a, a very simple place. I don't know. I'm Absolutely. just, I'm, yeah, I don't know. Obviously. Uh, definitely. Yeah. So a book that I recommend to folks by Lisa Fieldman Bear is How Emotions Work. And mm. she really is presenting some old ways of looking at how emotions are formulated that the emotional intelligence folks, Eisman and whatnot, have presented it in this particular way that there's very little data just supporting. And so this this uh, alternate way of looking at how emotions work is really revolutionary and I'm, I, I'm sold on it. And so that emotions are constructed and communicated concepts. It's mm -hmm. basically a constellation of body sensations mm -hmm. that we then label and have a cultural label for that. So we might have a cultural label for happiness that's communicated to different in American culture as well as other cultures around the world. Yeah, yeah. And we are, we know that certain cultures have different words for emotions that don't exist here. And right. We accept that, but we yes. but we don't uh, accept that the, the larger implication that all emotions are constructed concepts. So, for example, I had a, um, a kindergarten classroom where a student who is from a foreign country who English is a, a language that they're currently learning as well. Mm. Um, and they can speak of, to a fairly competent degree. But some of the concepts, like emotional concepts, are not fully there. So when we go around right. sharing how they're feeling, that student, instead of saying happy or peaceful, they'll say smiling or still. Oh, interesting. 
And so they're literally saying what their body is doing. Yeah. That then we as Americans have an emotional concept that we apply to what our body is doing. Like, yeah, peaceful. Yeah, like a deeper layer. And it's so interesting that the teacher's response was immediately to interrupt them and correct them and say, no, you're happy. And Ah. so this is how emotion concepts are communicated is that Mm. we teach them. Wow. And so uh, there's so much to learn in so many different ways about. So one of the things that mindfulness does is we start noticing what's happening. And so we can have tools to notice what's physiologically happening in our body, the sensations, Mm -hmm. and then suss out what are we really feeling, what emotions are really accurate. And when we start exploring that, we might be fairly surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And the difference between what we think we're feeling and the actual just combinations of sensations. Mm. Like in a completely different situation, judges before lunch assume that, that people are guilty more often because they misinterpret the sensations for hunger as guilt. I totally heard that podcast. Yes. Whatever, I can't yeah. remember where either I read that or I was listening to it, but that the the percentages of like people who wouldn't get you know paroled before and after lunch were huge yeah yeah i i that was that was like scary and like incredibly insightful and was it i think invisibilia is a podcast mm-hmm. that d- does a lot on on this is that do you, I sometimes listen to Invisibilia. They're, they're, yeah. they're fantastic programs. Yeah. They, mm-hmm. they in line with what you're saying, they did, a, I think they did a whole episode about, maybe you heard this one, the, this couple who was with a, a kind of tribe and they, they had this sort of word for an emotion that didn't exist in our, in our, in, in our culture. And it had to, it was like, it would often be related to, they were like, I think they were like man-eaters, like this Mm -hmm. tribe. And it had to do with this sort of frenzied feeling that wasn't, you know, it was part anger, part despair, part, like it was like, but it was more complex, you know, it was a very, and, and it was all about this anthropologist's attempt over time to kind of understand what that feeling and emotion was and, and recognize, you know, and he recognized he didn't have, he didn't currently, he couldn't feel what they felt because I think in line with what you're saying, he, I think he really saw that, no, this is emotions and, and, and there, they are, he had a similar takeaway. They're constructed in, in a, in a cultural context. And I do think everything you're pointing to there is so interesting in terms of, well, both, I mean, it has so many implications for language, cognition, emotion, culture, communication, and, and just like how how actually, you know, the whole tabula rasa con, con, concept, like that we really start out in, in a, as a blank slate, you know, that there's mm-hmm. so much constructed and relative. Yeah, 
So, so I would like to add to that sort of um, is that um, I don't believe that we're blank slates. And there's a lot of research showing how much of our experience, our lived experience, is informed by our ancestors' lived experiences. And so all of our DNA that we used to call junk DNA, they're actually finding out that it's actually very, it's very intentional and it's, mm. it's there for a reason and it in, has encoded in it the experience of our parents and our grandparents and maybe seven generations back, maybe beyond that, of all of their traumas, all of their ups and downs. And so all of that is epigenetically passed on. I, I have heard definitely... Yeah, I, I can't dispute that. I've, I've heard, definitely heard a lot about that, particularly with right. like the Holocaust and, and the, mm-hmm. the kind of cultural trauma that's been passed on. Absolutely, yeah. So so it's particularly important around, uh, around traumas. And so uh, the process is called methylization. And it, yeah, is the, um, the encoding of mm. our experiences onto the next generation. So... For example, like mice that are um, shown that like some arbitrary thing like raisins are, are associated with pain, like they shock them or something. Seven generations down, those baby mice are still associating the raisins with pain regardless of whether they have a shock with it or not. Wow, amazing. And so that's important for our classes in mindfulness is because in mindfulness we we become aware of what's happening. And so for histories of trauma in our family could be quite disturbing to, to be feeling those really intense, hard sensations, unpleasant, scary sensations. And we develop all sorts of coping mechanisms to bury those inside of us so we mm-hmm. don't feel them. And in mindfulness, we start to feel we start to notice sensations and experience what is happening. And so we can start uncovering some of these trauma experiences. And so it's important for mindfulness teachers to be aware of this for themselves and for their mm. students. Mm. And um, so uh, a mindfulness exercise could be re-traumatizing if the experience of that trauma is brought back by just noticing what's happening in the body and it becomes too overwhelming and they sort of collapse or freeze or um, it isn't handled well. So being competent in terms of identifying whether trauma response is happening and then giving instructions on how to come out of that appropriately, like looking around the room, identifying six blue things or two green things so getting them back up into their bodies of looking around and being in the world the tactile world that they're in touching them clapping their hands standing up something like that yeah interesting and well all right so there's a lot more to here to explore but Mm -hmm. i would also love to hear about your experience with the teenagers yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So 
I've been working, so in the, the summers, I do the, the camps for teens. Also in schools, the last couple months, I've been working with high schoolers in various different school districts, the Cambridge Public Schools, as well as the Newton Public Schools, working in their sort of alternative high school programs for mm-hmm. youth that are having a hard time succeeding in the, in the, the regular high school. So I, one, I really enjoy working with these demographics because I feel mm, a certain kinship because I was yeah, of course struggling in, in school and it's sort of a different program. And also, yeah, so the, the trauma piece comes in because some of these youth have experienced traumas at home or at school or mm-hmm. somewhere in the community mm-hmm. or they have ends historic systemic trauma in their families. Uh, so we do a lot of conversational interactive mindfulness activities in addition to the sort of the basic instruction. And so with teenagers, the biggest, most important thing you have to do is convince them that there's a point to doing it. <laughs> yeah. So, so I have to sell, I have to do a sales pitch every yeah. single class. Yeah. Even if they've done it a few times that day, they might just be feeling skeptical or dismissive. And so I have to inspire an interest of trying it, giving it a shot. Now, is that something that you learned on the job or is that something that is baked into the training that you've done? Yeah, that's something I've, I've learned and had to incorporate. And perhaps I took some from my energy efficiency work. Yeah. Uh, well, when you have a builder that's built a certain way for their entire life, being confronted by a 20-something saying that there are new, better ways of building and that the ways that they're building is actually against the law because it's not meeting code standards, but and actually could save them money and they could mark the building as energy efficient and make more money if I sell. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a, it's like a sales pitch. It's yeah, totally. It's, it's trying to inspire and you can like work different avenues. Of, oh, it's doing good for the environment. Oh, you're going to use less resources. Um, so you're going to save money or you can get a different clientele to be interested in purchasing the property. So yes, yes. So I think in going to countless networking events, I think those, those contributed to how I approach selling mindfulness to teenagers yes. who are in a classroom that um, they don't really want to be in uh, yeah, because they're, they, they just want to get a degree or something so that they can get out of school. Uh, the attendance at these schools is not high. Got maybe, it. maybe 50% attendance. Oh, maybe. wow. Yeah. Hmm. So, so when they show up, <laughs> they yeah. do mindfulness, and, yeah. and some of them don't see the point. Yeah. And so I try to meet them where they're at and adjust. So that's the biggest thing for all of my mindfulness classes is that I, I come in with a plan, but I completely match where the students are at mm-hmm. and meeting them. So the plan might go completely out the window. We might incorporate some of the elements of what I had planned. But I don't um, put my agenda onto them. I, I see that as a form of violence. 
Yes. All right. So you've sold the class. Now, like, give us an example then. Once you've got them on board and you've kind of successfully pitched it, what do some of these classes look like? But also, like, for you, what would you say are some of your success? What Can you give us an example of maybe a success story, but then also maybe an example of, like, some of the more challenging moments in all this yeah so um last week i went into a classroom and so one of the things that i try to do is i establish relationships with the students meaningful one-on-one relationships i can't do that with every student but i try to with a couple students in each of my classes yeah particularly with adolescents um, builds bridges and creates allies in the classroom and by right Right. And so one of the students I was talking to in the hallway outside of class and asking her about what, how the mindfulness classes are going and what any insights. And so I found out some remarkably important information. One, that um, the previous week's class did not go over well. It was a little bit too much mindfulness. And uh-huh. because of the background of the students, uh, many of the students reported that they went to sort of bad places. Wow. And so they don't want to do mindfulness anymore is the, um, the unspoken underlying sort of un, uh, attitude in the class. Yeah. And so by having that conversation, it was so important for me to, to know so that I could not just sort of go along with the lesson as planned and alter what I was offering to be appropriate. So we really ended up having a conversation and doing some mindfulness activities that were really um, trauma appropriate, Mm -hmm. Um, like looking around the room and noticing new things. So one way of framing mindfulness is noticing new things. And so we we can look around and see things. If you're in your room, you've been in that room maybe all this that whole school year. But I guarantee, if you look around that room, you would find new things, and that that triggers curiosity and interest. And and it's another way of practicing mindfulness. So we did some of that, but we also really had an engaged conversation, like what happened yes last week what went well what went didn't went well well and it's not that mindfulness is bad but mindfulness can make us aware of what's happening and some of these things that are happening and so it was a truly cooperative class where students who had not ever really been involved or engaged became engaged and added meaningful contributions and Mm -hmm. we talked about Mm -hmm. self-care in general and ways that we can do mindfulness or or take care of ourselves in appropriate helpful ways and not in triggering ways Mm. Um, and so people left that classroom really excited and inspired and we touched on a couple sort of important points two of which are pendulation and pendulation is just like a pendulum moves back and forth you go Mm. into doing a little mindfulness and you come out 
and mm-hmm. then you go in and you go out and so you can modulate by doing that and the other piece is titration and that's when you just take a little bit of something so like a scientist does a little pipette of a little couple drops and then they squeeze out the the dropper into the solution and they do that and so you can combine those pendulation and titration so you go in a little bit just taking a tiny bit of mindfulness and then coming out gives us more control and we can explore mindfulness more safely if trauma is a problem yeah so it sounds like that creates a context where they feel a little bit more in control yeah yeah absolutely Mm. well that's fascinating it makes sense. It makes sense some of this stuff is just going to come up when you just slow slow everything down. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So that was both an example of something that went well and something that didn't go well. So the yeah. previous week's class didn't go well because it was too much. We, we did too much um, deepening mindfulness meditation. And so this the second class was more productive and actually useful to the students because it was appropriate. Yeah. Have you seen kids that had or are having similar experiences to the ones that you had as a teenager? Maybe they're in similar kind of context personally or for totally different reasons, but and and I guess that's a, a more granular way of asking a broader question a related question which is are you are you happy with how it's going Mm. yeah so that's a good question so my work in schools is very sort of shallow shallow not meaning that it's not significant but it only is a small fraction of time it's sort of offering sort of an introduction to mindfulness and so I'm, I feel very grateful that I'm exposing mindfulness to so many young people. So I'm offering these skills. So I've, I've done 3,000 something students mm. so far. So um, these students now have tools to, to use yeah. in their lives. So just like when I wish that I, had mindfulness when I was being bullied and depressed and having a hard time with academics. It's like reading is still something that's difficult with me and I just do mindfulness while I read and it becomes not as painful. Mm. So, So I had wished that I had these skills when I was a young person and so Pre-kindergartners are, are getting these skills. Second graders, fourth graders, fifth graders, sixth graders, um, high school students are getting these skills and they can apply them in amazing situations. Like a student shared there was an icy morning and their, their parent drove off, uh, had like um, an accident on the way to school. It was a fairly minor, but for a, a, an elementary school student, that's a significant experience. Yeah. Even if it was a very minor accident, like they were still able to drive the car the rest of the way. Yeah. 
But the student reported that they had done mindfulness as soon as they realized it was a scary accident. And so they said they felt calm afterwards. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. So it's, it's, it's amazing. My heart is just is so full of gratefulness for these young people having these skills. Like a, one of the high school students that was having a rough time in the classroom, not like participating. Then he shared at home his mom was kicking him out of the house. And so he found a hallway somewhere and did mindful breathing in the hallway until he could calm down and, and call a friend. Mm. So like really significant situations are being yeah. changed because of mindfulness. Yeah. So so I see that it's it's working and I'm happy with it. And there's other programs and other experiments with doing more or longer mindfulness that I haven't been able to do yet in schools that I'm I'm starting to put together events for. So mm. I had an event in January where I co-taught a day-long retreat for adolescents. Yeah. And so that was pretty awesome. Um, yeah. And so we could go deeper. We could do more. We could answer more questions. We could have more conversation and, and not feel pressured for time. Because the high school classes are an hour, and mm -hmm. uh, elementary school classes are fifteen minutes, but twice right. as often. Right. So, so I'm starting to do my own independent events that are meeting the needs that I, I see that are happening that the school systems aren't aren't able to really meet. Yeah. Yeah. So another another piece that I think is important to mention. So when I go into schools, there aren't just students in them. I know this is this is a crazy concept. There are a bunch of adults that serve the students. Yeah. And they're as far as I can tell, they're exhausted, overworked, and doing their best. Yeah. And some of them are, are burnt out and have given up but are just continuing to do it. And others are still trying their best because they believe in the young people and do and that's teaching is really really important to them and so there's a lot of different folks in the schools and so the teachers may be more aware of and excited about the mindfulness programs that i'm offering as the students are and so when i'm doing a an eight-week class in a classroom, I'm meeting with the teachers before, during, and after the program to coach them about nice. mindfulness and answer yeah. the questions. And, and the expectation is that they begin to do some mindfulness themselves and following their own curiosity and interest in terms of which mindfulness uh, techniques there are. And the reason why I'm in their classroom is because they they requested it themselves. Mm. So I'm not working with teachers who don't want me there. And so the teachers are, are wanting more mindfulness themselves too, because when they're in the classroom, they still have to sort of be on, even though they're, they're participating too. Yeah. So I'm, I'm also starting to explore offering self-care mindfulness workshops for educators dude that seems like a com 
just a big winner of an idea. Right. Yeah. So the teachers have been asking me for this for a while. And yeah. so I've been trying to get this, the schools to have like a professional development PDs and occasionally they'll, they'll do it, but it's not regularly enough or um, consistent enough for what, what I see the demand as. And so I've got my, my first independent event for educators on the 25th, Sunday, the March 25th from 2 to 4.30 at Art and Soul Yoga in Cambridge. Awesome, man. Congratulations. That's really, really great. That's really beginning the process of scaling, isn't it? You're able to kind of scale the work to a different level if you can get the teachers really grounded in this stuff. Right, right. And I had sort of been waiting or trying to get the schools on board to do this but uh, things go slowly and there's bureaucracy and you have to sort of just wait yeah and and i've also been recording my mindfulness exercises yeah and so i'm going to be starting to put those on my website as well excellent yeah. that's great man well my, yeah well, so go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, yeah. So um, the website's mindfulnessofgabriel.com. Yes. All right. So let's let's wrap it up and and kind of as you've been talking, you know, I've I've kind of have this visual of you like throwing seeds into a a kind of a ripe, fertile field. Like that's kind of how I see it. As you described, reaching out, being able to so far touch three thousand kids and give them these tools. I think to me, it's a beautiful vision. And obviously a lot of this, you're not going to see all the fruit from your work, you know, right. gonna, this is, you're making an investment and you're throwing these seeds out there and, and some of them are going to take it. But I, you know, knowing from my own experience, I, I have no doubt that these, these things are going to, they're landing in, in these young human beings and they're going to, they're, they're so important, man. I, I just, I think you're doing such important work and, you know, I just, I don't know what to say. I, I just, I think it's really important what you're doing and thank you for doing it. Thank you, Morgan. I really appreciate that. And um, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing about meditation for adult, adult communities. Thank you. Well, Gabriel, how, you started to mention it. Can you just, for, for someone who wants to maybe follow up with you directly, learn more about what you're doing, potentially invite you to work in their schools if we have educators listening or who would, who would like to work with you personally, potentially. Mm -hmm. Can you share all and any of the ways that people can get involved with you? Like there's your website and your offerings on your website. Can you just speak to that for a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So mindfulnesswithgabriel.com has a, a page about going over some of the work that I do and there's a contact form that you can fill out and um, there's an events page where the workshop for educators are listed and there'll be another event going up in the next day or two for adolescents after the march on March 4th, 24th about gun violence. So mm -hmm. a recuperating mindfulness workshop for uh, post-march students great and there'll be resources going up soon about actually just audio of 
the mindfulness exercises mm -hmm. um, and the demand that I'm getting for mindfulness in schools is beginning to exceed my ability to teach everywhere. Yeah. And so if you do want to teach mindfulness in schools, uh, I'm considering taking on apprentices. Uh, so that would be something that you could reach out about as well. So this is for the Boston area. Excellent. And so it's mindfulnesswithgabriel.com? Yeah. Okay, great. And everybody, I'm going to link Gabriel's site up in the show notes for this episode, which you can get over at aboutmeditation.com in the, in the podcast section. Great. Gabriel, thank you so much for joining us today. This is, I really appreciated learning about your work and I know it's of interest to our audience. And yeah, this was wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Morgan, for having me. And uh, I'll see you next time at Nero Cafe. <laughs> yeah, you bet. So I hope you enjoyed my interview with Gabriel. I loved that interview. I really had a great time talking with, with Gabriel and learning about how he works with students. So if you're inspired by Gabriel's work, I encourage you to follow up. We've got all the links posted on the show notes for this episode over at aboutmeditation.com. So head on over to aboutmeditation.com, go into the podcast section and check it out. Also, in case you didn't know, we have courses. We have courses that will teach you how to meditate as a beginner meditator or as an intermediate meditator. So I encourage you to check that out. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider leaving us a rating on iTunes. A rating and a review makes a huge difference in terms of getting our show in front of more meditators. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the show. Let's end, as always, with a quote. And this, as always, I pull my quotes from this Buddhist organization called the Rigpa Glimpse of the Day. It's a, I think it's a Dzogchen Buddhist organization. And here's the quote. There is a famous saying, if the mind is not contrived, it is spontaneously blissful, just as water, when not agitated, is by nature transparent and clear. I often compare the mind in meditation to a jar of muddy water. The more we leave the water without interfering or stirring it, the more the particles of dirt will sink to the bottom, letting the natural clarity of the water shine through. The very nature of the mind is such that if you only leave it in its unaltered and natural state, it will find its true nature, which is bliss and clarity.